Our passage this morning is in Exodus chapter 7, Exodus 7, 1 through 13. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they... The magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. So glad you're here today, and uh, thank you for praying for our elders' retreat that we just came back from. We have amazing men that serve us as a church. So it's a privilege to be a, a part of uh, that leadership team. Prayed about a number of things that the Lord is laying on our hearts related to evangelism and discipleship, that viral discipleship culture, and then also uh, what it means for us to look external in terms of church planting and things of that, that sort. Nothing new to announce today other than we're just having this conversation and seeking the Lord and would ask you to pray with us over the next number of months as we just Ask the Lord. We've got all these things as opportunities. It's overwhelming. What do you want us to do? And uh, it's a great place to be in. Tonight is our uh, monthly Fresh Encounter service at 6 o'clock. We'd love to have you come and pray. Tonight is Miracle Night. And by that, if you're in a position and you're just like, you know what, I need seriously a, a miracle. I need God to reach our son. I, I'm, I'm out of work. I need a job. I need. We want you to come tonight and we want to pray over you. We're going to hear from some folks whose God, God has worked in their life with a miracle, uh, and other folks tonight who are coming, God's worked in one way, but they need Him to work even more. So invite you to come tonight and uh, just see how God works. I, God answers prayer, and um, when we ask, He is inclined to move. So come and join us tonight at 6. At 5 o'clock, we have a, a more personal prayer time. My wife, Sarah, uh, Don Bartimus, one of our pastors, and Cheryl uh, we'll uh, be at our prayer room at 5 o'clock. And if you have a personal need, we would love just to personally pray uh, over you. So you're welcome to come then too. All right, let's, let's pray. Ask the Lord to help us. God, today, uh, what a privilege to try and use uh, the English language to communicate things that are beyond words. And I ask you to use your word, the sacred text, to captivate our attention with the beauty of your supremacy over all things. I ask today, God, that we will leave today more in love with you, more humbled by your word and what it is that we need to do in terms of change by your spirit. 
that, Lord, there will be people here today who today will be the day of their salvation when they literally move from darkness to light and give up the supremacy of their own life and instead run to Christ. So, Lord, help us today. Holy Spirit, come right now, I pray, and give us ears to hear your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last fall we began an extensive study of the book of Exodus. And if you're not familiar with the book of Exodus, it's the story of God's deliverance of the people of Israel out of slavery in the land of Egypt. The, the study involved looking at the early days of Israel's condition. And I want to just give you a summary of that to set the context for where we're going to look um, today in God's Word in um, Exodus chapter 7. So the Israelites find themselves in the nation of Egypt, in large part because Joseph's family moved there in order to avoid a famine. God spared his people from famine by putting Joseph in a high-level governmental position. The problem was is the Pharaoh who knew Joseph died, a new Pharaoh came uh, to power, and the Israelites kept growing in their population. As a result, their numbers were growing, and the Egyptians viewed them as, frankly, a national security threat. Because of the political instability of the time, it wouldn't be uncommon for an invading force to come in. And if they came in and you have all of these people who are uh, really aliens in your land, they might be a part of an insurrection. And so Egypt began a governmental policy of oppression, putting them in bondage and gradually over time making life more and more difficult, all with a view to try and keep them in control. Well, although they tried all these things, the people kept growing numerically, and so Pharaoh instructed the midwives to kill male babies when they were born. They disobeyed that order, and as a result, Pharaoh instructed every person in Egypt that if they found a Hebrew baby, they were to throw it, a male baby, they were to throw it into the Nile. Into this genocide, um, Moses is born. He is hidden in a ark-like boat, a little... Um, crib of sorts that's floating in the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter discovers him. She adopts this Hebrew child into the home of Pharaoh, and Moses grows up in a position of royalty and um, honor and power. However, Moses understands and knows that he's really an Israelite, and so he sees the oppression of the Israelite people, sees his position as a powerful person in the Egyptian family, and tries to use his authority to save his people Israel. He kills an Egyptian slave master. The word spreads and Moses has to flee. He runs to Midian. For all intents and purposes, and from Moses' perspective, his life is over. While he's in Midian, he marries, uh, begins tending sheep, and one day is uh, far away from his home and comes to a, a, a mountain called the Mountain of God. Later on in Exodus, this is known as Mount Sinai. And there he comes to a bush that's burning. And from that bush... The God of all creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob speaks to Moses, tells him to take off his shoes, the place that he's standing on is holy ground, and then tells him that he is I Am, he is Yahweh, and that he is sending Moses to Egypt to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses, rather reluctantly, joins up with Aaron, and they go and tell Pharaoh that he is to let God's people go. Pharaoh's response was less than supportive. (laughs) Pharaoh says, who is this God that I should obey him? And the book of Exodus is basically about, yeah, you'll see. (laughs) So who is this God that I should obey him? And then Pharaoh thinks that Moses is distracting the people, so he makes their work even harder, which then makes the people of Israel frustrated with Moses. And they say, why did you even come here? 
in the first place, you've made our life even harder than Moses says to God. Everything you've told me I've done and nothing you've said has come true. And then God says this, and this is where we left it when we closed our last little section. It says, God said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. So the the passage we looked at or the section we looked at before was all about a God who hears The book of Exodus tells us that God heard the people's groaning. He heard their cry for help, and he was moved to act. So that entire section, chapters 1 to 6, was out about the God who hears. In fact, I tried to make the point, and I'll say it again, that the book of Exodus isn't just about Israel. It's not about, really, the deliverance of God's people. It's not even about Pharaoh. It's not about Egypt. At the end of the day, the book of Exodus is about God. It's about God delivering his people. It's about God rescuing his people. It's about God hearing. It's about God intervening in the course of human history. And so for the next number of weeks, we're going to look at chapters 7 through 12, and we're going to see not only the God who hears, but now the God who delivers, the God who comes to rescue his people. And and just like the last section, it wasn't about Israel, it was about God. So we're going to see here in this section that God's aim is not just to judge Egypt. It's not just to bring his people out of Egypt. It's not just to give us all of these beautiful signs and symbols that will have their their, their full explanation in the New Testament. The the central theme of chapter 7 through 12 is the supremacy of God above all rivals. In other words, when the God of the universe says, those are my people, let them go, you better listen. So what's the theme? The theme essentially is this, that God is supreme above all rivals. He's the ruler of the universe. He is the creator. He is the I am. He is going to show everyone, including us, that he is the Lord. You see, this is the goal that he has for Israel. He wants Israel to know that he is the Lord. And he's going to show them that he is the Lord by delivering them out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7, listen, it says this, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So Israel is going to know that he is Lord. How? Because he's going to pull them out of slavery. Also, God wants Egypt to know that he is Lord. Exodus chapter 7, the text that we'll look at today, says this, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So God wants Israel to know that he is Lord through the Exodus. He wants Egypt to know that he is Lord through the Exodus. And he also wants Pharaoh to know that he is Lord. Exodus chapter 9 says this. This is in the context of the plague of hails, of the plague of hail. He says, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And then God says this, but for this purpose, he's speaking here directly to Pharaoh, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Wow. So Pharaoh and Egypt and Israel and the Exodus, the the, the Passover lamb, the 
the, the, the ten plagues, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, all of it are designed to communicate one thing. God is God and he tolerates no rivals. He's the creator and when he says, let my people go, you listen, you obey. He will bend the knee of Egypt. He will crush the heart of Pharaoh. He will take the greatest superpower known in the world and he will drown them in the Red Sea all in order to both deliver his people but more importantly to communicate he is God. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, there is no one like him. And God is relentless in his yearning and desire to proclaim that, not only for his own glory, but for the good of the world. Listen to me. You need to know that there is no rival to God. You need, it is good for you to know that there is no one like him in the earth. It's not that God is a megalomaniac consumed with his own image. It is that your good is the glory of God. And that is why God must display it, not only because he is worthy, but because it is so right. So God is going to deliver his people, but he's going to do it through judgment. And this is an important theme. God is going to deliver his people, and he's going to do it through judgment. Joe mentioned the Think Conference that's coming up. Dr. James Hamilton, our speaker, has written a wonderful book. It's a, Joe mentioned a biblical theology book. The title of it is God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. In other words, there's a direct connection between God's glory, salvation, and judgment. And in that book, he says this, and it's really helpful to get our minds around this for Exodus and also for our understanding of the whole Bible. He says this, salvation always comes through judgment. Salvation for the nation of Israel at the Exodus came through the judgment of Egypt. And this pattern is repeated throughout the Old Testament, becoming paradigmatic even in the New When God saves his people, he delivers them by bringing judgment on their enemies. This is not limited to Old Testament enemies such as the Philistines. Salvation for all believers of all ages is made possible by the judgment that falls on Jesus at the cross. The cross allows God to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross of Christ, the climactic expression of the glory of God in salvation through judgment is the turning point of the ages. You see it? You see, God can be merciful to you today if you receive Christ as your Savior because He has poured out judgment on Christ. He can't be merciful to you apart from the judgment born by Jesus. And that is why our mission as a church is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. It's why everything about us is centered on the cross because that is the defining moment when God poured out judgment so that he could then give mercy. God doesn't owe mercy to anybody. And the fact that he even allows it to be poured out on us through Christ is an unbelievable act of benevolent grace. So this idea of deliverance through judgment It's a very important biblical theme. It's also embedded in what the whole book of Exodus, and for that matter, what the whole Bible is about. God's glory through salvation, or in salvation rather, through judgment. There are two objects of judgment in our text. The the first object is Egypt, and the second object is Pharaoh. You need to understand that in order for God to communicate that he tolerates no rivals, he he focuses his judgment on these two objects, Egypt and Pharaoh. He intends, God intends, to communicate that he has no rivals and he smashes all idols, external idols and internal idols. 
He will compete with the gods of Egypt. And he will declare once and for all that those gods are nothing. They are foolish, wimpy, meaningless, so-called gods. They are not gods. And he will take Pharaoh, the ruler of this superpower, and he will humble him and eventually will kill him. You see, God has no rivals. And essentially the text that we'll be looking at this week and for the next number of weeks is about a conflict between God and a nation and a ruler that is opposing his will. So we get a prelude to this in verses 1 to 13 of chapter 7. Let's, let's study this to see if we can get an introduction into these themes and to how things progress in this passage. Verses 1 and 2, we see that Moses and Pharaoh become God's spokesmen and really almost become like God to Pharaoh. They are the mediators, if you will, of God's glory and his power. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your your prophet. Verse 2, you shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. So essentially Moses and Aaron become the mediators of God's word and the mediators of God's authority and his power. When Moses shows up, he's going to speak for God. Moses declares or Aaron declares what's going to happen. God is the one who is behind it. Verse 3 highlights a theme that we first learned about in the burning bush narrative, that God intends to get his glory from Pharaoh by the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Look at verse 3. He says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and although, or though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. This isn't the first time we heard this. Back in the burning bush narrative in Exodus chapter 4, God says this to Moses. He says, When you go back to Egypt, see that, that you do before Pharaoh and all the miracles that I have put in your power, and I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So, When you think of judgment, you need to think of it not only in terms of the ten plagues, but also in terms of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And I'll unpack that in a moment, help you understand that more fully. So God delivers people, his people, through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, but he also delivers them through the ten plagues. Look at verse 4. He says, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So God is going to deliver his people by force, by great acts of judgment. And then look at verse 5. Here's the goal. Why why is God doing all this? Is he doing it because Israel is such a catch? (laughs) No, no. No, they're, They're not any better catch than you are. Okay? So they get out in the wilderness and they complain, they moan, they groan. And at one point in the narrative in Exodus, God says, Moses, just back up. I'm going to wipe them all off. The face of the earth, we're going to start over. You you ought to be glad that I was not Moses in that text. Because I would have said, that's a good idea. So (laughs) Moses instead pleads for God to not wipe them off the face of the earth. He even leverages God's fame in his name as the reason why God shouldn't do it. His people are not worthy of God's mercy. They're not great people. Why does God save them? Why does he rescue them? Verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. The Israelites were just the portrait upon which God painted the beautiful display of his glory. 
It wasn't that they were a glorious people, but it was in spite of who they are that God rescued them so that his name could be declared among the Egyptians and for that matter, over the whole face of the world. You see, God aims to honor and glorify his name. He aims to deliver his people and he's going to deliver them by judgment. He will communicate that he is supreme above all rivals. And then we have an illustration of that in uh, verses 8 to 13. We see that Moses and Aaron uh, show up at the court of Pharaoh and they use their first sign. And this sign becomes a harbinger of things that are to come. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. Verse 10, So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his serpents, and it became a serpent. So everything goes as planned. Verse 11, Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, did also did the same by their secret art. So just get to see Aaron throws down his staff, and it becomes a serpent. Everyone's like, ooh, oh. And Pharaoh's like, yeah, that's no big deal. Magicians come in here. They threw down their staff, and it became a snake. And suddenly it's like, ooh, and then, ah, okay. And all of a sudden, the magicians look down, and something's really wrong. It says, for each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So all of a sudden, hey, what's going on here? If you're a magician, stop eating my snake. And all of a sudden, you look down, your snake's gone. It's a little embarrassing, isn't it? If you're a magician, your snake just ate mine. Hey, come on, right? And you're looking around, there's no snakes, but simply errands. And this becomes, as I said, a harbinger of what's going to come. God has no rivals. And this little scene is a a microcosm of what we're going to see in the ten plagues that, in effect, my God is going to eat your God's lunch. Or for that matter, your God's going to become my God's lunch, right? And that, that's the message that's being communicated here, that these gods are, they're nothing. They're, they're so-called gods. They are, in fact, false gods. And so we get a, a sense of what is to come. And then this little section, this pericope, ends with Pharaoh's, the statement about Pharaoh's heart. Even though he saw the swallowing of his own serpents from his magicians verse 13 says still pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the lord had said so here's the thing college park god is going to exalt himself over pharaoh and over egypt and in order to understand this section of scripture and in order to understand the whole thing about Pharaoh's heart and for that matter in order to understand the message of the, of the entire Bible you you have to get in your understanding where the supremacy of God fits in light of everything else you, you you'll miss the ultimate story of the Bible if you don't understand that God's aim is to display the beauty of who and what he is in everything that he does. So whether it's creation or redemption or judgment or mercy or grace or the cross or the resurrection or the final state, God's aim is to declare he is supreme above everything. From the rising of the sun to its setting, there is no one like him. That is the essence of the message of the Bible. Yes, you must clap to that. Yes, you must. These things are not intended to be individual themes throughout the Bible. They're like 
pearls strung together that are meant to display the beautiful majesty and the glory of God. This, everything God does is for this purpose. Just take your Bible. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. This is in the New Testament. And it, it shows up in a really significant way in Exodus. In fact, Exodus lays the foundation for this concept. But this is a major theme in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, after Paul talks about all the things that are so wrong with humanity, how, how wicked and awful we are, he then says, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. What that means is this. Even though you're awful, even though you did something terrible last night, There's mercy available for you today, but not because you're a catch. Look what it says. He made us alive together with Christ. There's hope today. You've been saved by grace. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And why? Here's why. Why did He do this? He did this, verse 7, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Why is it important so that no one can boast? Because God tolerates no rivals. That's why pride is so reprehensible to God. Because everything we have, we've received. Look at Romans chapter 11. After talking about the the beautiful display of the, the riches of God's mercy, even before the foundation of the world, Paul concludes, Romans 8, 33 to 36, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Answer? No one. Say that. No one. Who has become his counselor? Answer, no one. Who has given a gift to him that he could be repaid? No one. And then it says this, I love this text, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That is the heart of what the Bible is all about. It is, it is why God had to pour out his wrath of sin for sin on Christ. See, this is not just a theme of the Old Testament. It is the theme of the Old and the New. God is going to be supreme over all rivals. He will smash all idols. It is only a matter of time. Deliverance comes through judgment. Listen to me. Every single one of us will face judgment. And the question is whether or not our judgment has been poured out on Christ. We all experience judgment, but the matter, the question is whether or not that judgment has been poured out on Jesus. So the gospel is, what the good news is, is that you can be forgiven today. You can have a new relationship with God today, but it only comes through Christ. Why? Because he's the one who absorbed your punishment. God delivers, but he delivers through judgment. So the objects of his judgment are both ex, are, are both Egypt and Pharaoh. So what are the means of judgment? The means of judgment are the ten plagues and then the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Let's talk about those. First, the ten plagues. 
When we look at chapters 7 through 12, you're going to see these ten plagues, and you need to see them through a particular lens. You need to realize that, that God uses these ten plagues in order to say something to Egypt. So Egypt was a major superpower, and they were a superpower because they had water, and the Nile provided great sustenance for them. And so the center of life in, in Egypt was the Nile and all of the things connected to the Nile and all of the natural blessings of the region in which they lived. The, the Egyptians equated that there must be gods that are favorable to us and that is why we have all of this power that we've been given. So for Egypt, there was a direct connection between their material success, their military success, their national success and the blessings of their gods. And so when God comes in and he uses the Nile and he turns it to blood and he causes frogs to come out of the Nile. He's not just making life annoying or difficult. He is shocking them and taking the thing that they think makes them successful and he's turning it on them and destroying them with it. God is using the thing that they look at and go, this defines our culture and he is killing them with it. Tried to think of, what would that be comparable to? The closest I can get is for things to get so bad in our country that we would actually say something like this. This freedom that we have is killing us. We gotta, we gotta change this freedom thing because it is destroying us. Or maybe we would say something like, this stock market, we gotta, this whole idea of capitalism, free market, we gotta completely, this thing is killing us. We gotta destroy it and start completely over. It would be as though the things that we prize as what makes our culture unique and successful are the very things that are actually destroying us. And God uses the very things that they are proud of, the things that they worship, and He says in a fact, I will take the things that you think make you successful, I will take your gods, and I will use your own gods against you. These ten plagues are a statement. They're set up into three groups of three, and then one major plague, which is the death of the firstborn. You could think of them in this way. The first three plagues are really sources of irritation. Things progress. You have the Nile turning to blood, you have frogs. I mean, can you imagine frogs everywhere? It's just gross isn't it or gnats just you have these things that are sources of irritation the second set of plagues the flies the cattle the boils they cause destruction and then the final three plagues the um hail locusts and darkness and then also the death of the firstborn if we add that one in there are all characterized by death and and so they they are these these plagues are ramping up to greater and greater statements about god's sovereignty over the nation of Egypt. And what's interesting also is that if you look, the very first of all three, the first one of those three couplets, Moses meets Pharaoh or Aaron meets Pharaoh at the Nile. The second of all three, he delivers God's message to him in all three cases in the, temp- in the, um, in the palace, not the temple, in the palace. And then the third comes without warning. So it's sort of like God saying, when you're at the Nile, you're going to hear my word. If you don't obey, there's going to be plagues. I'm going to come to the palace, and I'm going to tell you, let my people go. And if you don't listen to me, there's going to be plagues. And then, if you just don't listen to me, without warning, there's going to be plagues. It's it's as though God can turn on and turn off the forceful punishment of the nation of Egypt by using their own gods against them. God, through Moses, controls the very gods that Egypt thinks makes them safe and secure. So these plagues progress 
in order to demonstrate that when Yahweh God says, let my people go, he must be obeyed. He is Lord of all. There is no rivals. Just to remind you, this is the same God who rules the universe today. Do you know that he still has no rivals? Do you know that he still tolerates no false gods, whether they are actual physical gods or gods of our own hearts? So, idols, false gods are one thing. When we talk about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, we see another dimension of God's judgment and that he will tolerate no internal idols of people who act as though they don't have to obey God. As if when God says, let my people go, there's nobody excused by saying, I don't know who this God is. Why should I obey him? As though someone say, oh, you don't know who he is? Okay, yeah, don't, don't worry about it. Don't, don't obey him. No, this is the God who has no rivals. So what we have here is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, which is part of God's judgment. So this presents a bit of a problem. Let me state it clearly. At times, it appears that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and at other times, it appears that God hardened his heart. So which is it, and how is it fair? It's a great question. Before I attempt to answer that question, let me help you get the right set of lenses on this text, the right vantage point, and remember that the point of this passage is about God's supremacy over everything. So everything feeds into that theme that the Exodus is designed to display the glory of God through the deliverance of God's people. Pharaoh, in his providential moment of being the leader of Egypt, is there for the purpose of displaying the worth and the glory of God. Exodus chapter 9 even says this. God says this, But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power and so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So when you look at this question of Pharaoh and the hardness of his heart, you have to get the right lens. And the lens is, is that everything is about the magnification, the glorification, the global spread of God's name. That's the purpose of this book. It is about God, not Pharaoh. It's about God, not plagues. It's about God, not Israel. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart has a purpose. And that purpose is to display the superiority of God over Egypt. In the same way that the plagues communicated God's superiority over Egypt, so God also displays his supremacy in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Now secondly, keep in mind that this hardening is one of the ways that God brings judgment. I really need you to listen very carefully here. Because I believe the enemy and your own soul does not want to hear what I'm about to tell you. And that is this. That one of the ways that God brings judgment is by not preventing the human heart from going where it would naturally go on its own. Let me restate that because it's really important. One of the ways that God brings judgment is by not preventing the human heart from going where it would naturally go without God intervening or rescuing, or saving. In, in, in a word, or a phrase, the Bible often refers to this as when God gave them up. So Romans 1 tells us that when God's, when, when people, not God, when people suppress the truth about what they should know about God, meaning they, they, they suppress the truth that God is God, or they try and create their own standard of morality, 
even though inside they feel guilty and they suppress that. Where does that guilt come from? You do something wrong, why do you naturally feel guilty? Because there's a conscience, and there's a conscience that tells you that God is real. And when you suppress the truth that you know that's within you, this is wrong, something's wrong about this. You may not know the solution, but you know there's something broken. This isn't right. I, I, I did this, and then I feel guilty. And you suppress it and go, nah, i got a bunch of friends who do that. That can't be wrong. Or most people in our culture do this anyways. Or, nah, I, I've done this for years, and it's, it's not ever been a problem. But inside you know there's something wrong with it. What happens is that your unwillingness to deal with that issue a sign of God's judgment is Romans 1.24. He gives us up to the lusts of our own hearts. It means it grows, gives us up to dishonorable passions. Things will look back and go, what was I thinking? Things to a debased mind where now you're thinking about this stuff and then all manner of unrighteousness. In other words, listen, There are times when God, out of judgment, simply no longer intervenes. He allows us to follow the dictates of our own hearts and the effects of unrestrained sin. It leads to a hardness, hardness of heart. Book of Hebrews describes it this way. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. Here's why. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me illustrate this for you. This happens practically when you do something that you know is wrong and you look around and nothing bad happened. And you're like, got away with it. And so you do it again. Look around, nothing happened. So you do it again. And pretty soon, what at first you looked for judgment and nothing happened and you did it again and 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 again. And now this one-time act has now become a habit. It's actually become a pattern of your life. And the fact of the matter is you can do it now without even thinking, maybe something's going to happen to me. On a lighter illustration of this, one of the things that was not enjoyable about having two sons in driver's training was all of the self-righteousness about what rules of the road I broke all the time, right? So I I, I go up to a stop sign, right? And the stop sign by our house, okay, confession time, I roll through it all the time. I mean, there's... Cars never come anyways, right? So I just just kind of roll. They're like, hey, Dad, you know you just roll through that stop sign? I'm like, I didn't roll through that. You, you rolled. And then when there's two of them, it's worse. Oh yeah, you roll. We got a witness, you know. You, you were rolling through there. I'm just like, why don't you guys ride with your mom or something, you know? I just, leave me alone. But the fact of the matter is you don't realize how many things just over time, it just becomes second nature, second nature, second nature, right? And that's what, what happens in a, in a little way with, you know, small infractions like that. But friends, when it becomes bigger realities of life, the hardness of heart can really begin to set in. And listen to me, the hardness of heart is a part of the judgment of God. So if you can do things and not feel guilty anymore, you ought to be scared to death. You ought to not be like, oh, it's really not a problem anymore. You ought to be shaking in the bottom of your spirit that you can do this and not feel bad anymore. So this is what the hardness of heart is. So it's a sign of God's judgment. And so then the question is, 
So did, did, did Pharaoh harden his own heart or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And the answer is yes. You thought I was going to give you a definitive one. It is definitive. It's yes. In fact, the Bible gives us both, even within a few verses of each other. Listen to Exodus chapter 9. It says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's Exodus 9 verse 12. And he did not listen to them. So the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then Exodus chapter 9 verse 34, it says, just a few verses later, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. So there's a dual nature of this, both God's activity and Pharaoh's activity. Now, some of you are immediately thinking this very important question, which is, well, how is that fair? Great question. And often when you find a question like that, it's important to see that the Bible doesn't answer that question. It asks a better question. The better question is what Paul asks in Romans chapter 9 when wrestling with God's sovereign purposes. So, did Pharaoh harden his own heart, or did God, did God harden his heart? Answer, yes. Listen to what Romans 9, 17 says. He even quotes this particular passage in Exodus chapter 7. For the Scripture says, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And then Paul says this, so he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now that should create a question. And the question is, well, you will then say to me, well, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Great question. It's answered by an even better question. And Paul's better question is this, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, the whole question of fairness misses the major point, which is we're talking about the supreme creator of all things, God and Pharaoh. We're talking about fairness? And as parents, you've done this a hundred times. What do you mean? So, six-year-old child, it's 8 o'clock at night, it's time for her, it's a little specific here, sorry, time for her to go to bed, right? And you say, honey, it's time for you to go to bed. And she says, oh, can't I stay up? No, you can't. Well, how late are you and mom going to stay up? Well, we're going to stay up till 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock? That's not fair. So what is your answer? Do you go in through a long explanation about why she needs good rest? Do you go into explanation about why your parents put you to bed early and it's, it's just simply fair now that you get to, you know, be unfair to your kids? Do you do that? What, what do you, what do you do? You know what, many of, you know what you've done a hundred times? You said, honey, you're a child, we're parents, you need to go to bed. No explanation, just the distinction of category. And that is exactly what we have that's going on here in the text. He is God. And Pharaoh, you're not. So we're not even talking about the same caliber, the same category of people. God is so glorious, so great, that there are questions which cannot be answered. Some things in the Bible, they're, meant, they're just there to humble us and to blow our minds. Because if you could say, well, I got it all figured out. God is like in this box, then you would be a rival. And there are no rivals to God, even in the understanding of God. This was the lesson that Pharaoh will learn. He will see that when Israel 
is going to be brought out of Egypt, and when the God of Israel says, let my people go, he must be obeyed, that the creator of the universe will have no rivals, no internal or external idols. So let me ask you, do you know that the same God who delivered Israel is the same God on the throne today? Do you know that disobedience to Him is still as dangerous as it was in the Old Testament and the New? Do you know that God tolerates no rivals either on the inside or the outside? Do you know that He still hardens the heart? Allows your soul to go where it would go? He owes no one mercy. He doesn't owe you mercy. He doesn't owe you any mercy. And if he pours it out, it is only because of his infinite and lavished, undeserved grace. And the final thing is, do you know that God has made deliverance possible through the judgment that he's delivered on his son? The cross is central in the Christian faith because the cross is the way that God poured out judgment so he could be merciful. And my invitation to you would be today, run to the cross so that you could be spared the judgment of God and be delivered to the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the ten plagues, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the the whole reality of the deliverance of Egypt are all meant to show us that deliverance comes through judgment, but the ultimate deliverance of judgment came through the crucifixion of the Son of God who became the Lamb of God to take away the wrath of God so you could be the child of God. Oh Lord, I would want that so badly for our people today, for them to know how to be spared from judgment and to know that deliverance comes through judgment, but only through your Son. And so today, would you humble us under truths that at times blow our minds, humble us under the reality that we couldn't self-atone. And today, Lord, today, would you make today the day of conversion when somebody understands the hardness of heart is set in, is scared to death of where they're headed, and today runs to Christ and says, you've got to change my heart because it's become hardened. And in that thought, you've already begun to pour out mercy. To think that we need help is a sign that you've begun to move. And so God, we pray today by your Spirit, move. Help us to hate sin in all of its forms, to take it deadly seriously. And give us grace to walk in obedience because you are still God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So afterwards, if you have some things that you need to pray about or pray with someone, there'll be some folks up here at the front who would count it a joy to talk with you about some spiritual things or pray over you. All right? Hope you can come tonight at 6 o'clock. God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.